Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 95. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, as usual, all the typical housekeeping. If you do like the Brian McClanahan Show, you can share it around on social media and you can find me on social media. You can like me on Facebook, just facebook.com forward slash Brian McClanahan. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. You, you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just do a search for Brian McClanahan. And uh, all that good stuff. Of course, if you want a free ebook and audiobook, you can go out to brianmcclanahan.com. That's Brian with an O. You should know that if you like the podcast already. And you can give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook and audiobook, Forgotten Founders, read by yours truly. And of course, I will send you a couple of emails a week, at least two, maybe three. Uh, but you can look for those in your inbox. So you'll get an email from me. And how great is that? Also, if you go to my page, you can click on the button at the top that says support, and you can support The Brian McClanahan Show. You can give me a penny or five or whatever you feel like you want to send my way. I appreciate all of it. It'll help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. So I do appreciate your support. Okay. Oh, and don't forget, time is running out. September 18th is the launch day for How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. If you go to BlameHamilton.com, get all the details, get your pre-orders out there, pre-order your uh, one book, you get your you get your ebook. If you order two or more, you get your class on Hamilton and your ebook. One person on Twitter uh, said that the book alone is worth the the ebook alone is worth the price of the pre-order. Plus, you get the book when it comes out. So those deals are only there until the 18th. And don't forget, you're also put into a drawing for a Liberty Classroom Master Membership level. So. Uh, if you don't know about Liberty Classroom, you can go through my affiliate link, LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com, and find out more about it. Uh, but you can get a master-level membership. Uh, potentially, if you uh, uh, buy a pre-order a book and you're in the drawing for it. So that's great. That's a, that's a huge deal. Lifetime membership to Liberty Classroom. It's uh, something you can't pass up. Uh, there's also a second and third place prize as well. So uh, going out there to BlameHamilton.com, see the details and uh, get your get in the contest, right? And also, the forward is by Ron Paul. And that's something I don't talk about. I, I should talk about that more. But Ron Paul wrote the forward to the book. So not only is it an awesome book, but it's written, the forward is written by Ron Paul. I mean, you, you, got, you got to go with that. Now, 
That actually brings me to the topic for today, and it's Louisiana. So I did have a listener say, you know, I'd really like to hear a podcast on the Louisiana Purchase. And actually, this is a good time to do this. Michael Malice, who is well-known to Tom Woods uh, fans as the pro-Hamilton guy, and I had a debate about uh, Hamilton just on Twitter. It was, it was you know, just uh, kind of light and good-natured and funny. Uh, but... Uh, Malice made the point, and everyone does this with Jefferson. Yeah, you like Jefferson, but how about that unconstitutional Louisiana Purchase? How about that? It shows that you know even Jefferson wasn't really that interested in strict construction when it went his when it went against what he wanted. So he's willing to go with loose construction whenever it suits his fancy. And so you guys, you strict. I mean, Jefferson was just the arch enemy of uh, all that is good in the general government. Hamilton, at least, I, I think Malice is position on Hamilton is, yeah, he's a bad guy, but he's a bad guy, I know, and at least he's honest about it, so we can deal with that. And of course, there is a lot to admire about how Alexander Hamilton as a, as a patriot. I mean, I don't think you can say that, uh, and his views on human nature, a lot of us would agree with, and uh, what humans are, uh, but uh, Hamilton was a power-hungry psychopath in so many ways. He was a liar, and that's the main point of how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. He lied over and over and over again, particularly when it came to the powers of the general government, one and how we, what they said were they going to be, and then, of course, what they did. And, of course, he was orchestrating all of that in the early, uh, you know, the early Washington administrations and then even working behind the scenes after uh, Washington was out of office and John Adams was there. So um, I think that Hamilton is uh, the great scoundrel in American history because— of his constitutional machinations. Uh, so, one of those things, of course, is Louisiana. And, you know, we get to this, and it's always pointed out, well, yeah, you, you guys, as I just said, and even Malice, Malice does this off. Yeah, well, what about Louisiana? You know, what about that? So let me talk about the Louisiana Purchase, because I think it's one of those things that can be easily diffused and, and simply by saying, look, uh, Louisiana was constitutional. Now, Let's talk about the story behind it and how when I say that, you're, oh, wait, 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 you can't say that because that's an implied power. That was an implied power. You're saying an implied power is constitution. It's the same thing that Hamilton said about the bank. Not so fast. There is a major, major difference. And I actually got into this in pretty substantial detail in my uh, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America and Four Who Tried to Save Her in the, in the chapter on Thomas Jefferson, who I said was one of the four presidents who tried to save America. And, of course, I had to talk about Louisiana because it's the common retort. Oh, yeah, right. Louisiana. Strict construction, my butt. It's Louisiana all the way. This guy didn't really care. And this is, again, malice. Is, when, when the Constitution was not working for him, they became against it, and they, they went and did what they wanted anyways. So let's talk about this issue of Louisiana. So when you look at American history, one of the great trends of American history, and, I, and when I teach it, I talk about this. You know, One of the great trends of American history is the Westward Movement. When we first see Americans landing on the shores of North America, they're confined to these little pockets, little settlements along the coast because they need access to England. And some intrepid Americans begin moving inland. And, of course, as these Americans move inland, they start claiming that territory for the British, and the British Empire begins to fill it out. And, of course, you got the French pressing down from Canada, and you got the Spanish pressing up from the Gulf of Mexico. And so you have this, uh, this movement of Europeans into the Western territories. And a lot of these people were, uh, you know, Celts, 
uh, and uh, these Celtic peoples didn't really care for any type of central authority, and their culture uh, was very much driven by uh, anti-British sentiment. Uh, and so you've got these rough and tumble kind of people on the frontier. Now you did have a lot of Englishmen moving in too. You know, you look at Virginia history, and you look at, say, for example, Bacon's Rebellion in 1676. Uh, you have, uh, you know, Bacon's Rebellion as this Bacon, Nathaniel Bacon was uh, a cousin of the governor. Uh, and uh, so uh, Berkeley, William Berkeley. So uh, you had this, uh, you had these Englishmen moving in. And of course, you had a lot of uh, people that were just looking for land. They were squatters, renters, you know, these kind of things. But uh, as that, as Americans move west, and this, this begins to take place, so you get to the Treaty of Paris, 1783. And the United States uh, has a whole swath of territory to the west. Now, the United States doesn't necessarily have it at that point. It's all owned by Virginia, essentially. Virginia being uh, the state that acquired it through uh, the Clark uh, expedition. George Rogers Clark, uh, who went out there and picked up all this territory for the state of Virginia. And then Virginia would uh, graciously cede that territory to the general government under the Articles of Confederation. They would do so in uh, 1784. And this was Thomas Jefferson's design. Jefferson said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give this land to the general government because it allows for us to organize the territory properly. We can create states out of it ultimately. We can gain revenue out of this because, hey, revenue would be a good thing. That way we don't have to have large taxes. We can just sell land and that will create a revenue. We have to remember too, the general government didn't need a lot of revenue. They needed enough revenue to pay their debts. And uh, they needed some revenue uh, for general functions of government. But they didn't have all the social welfare apparatus, the, wel the warfare state, all the things we have today. They didn't need a lot of money. So but we're going to get some revenue out of this. And uh, this would allow for the United States to control how this territory is going to be settled. Now, of course, you've got American Indian tribes out there. And these American Indian tribes are hostile to the United States. You've got the Miami War, which uh, begins out there, uh, which is the Northwest Indian War. It's part of it. Uh, you've got some real problems there. And you've got the British still squatting on some of this territory. So this helps lead into uh, the, the uh, War of 1812. But you have uh, General Matt Anthony Wayne making a name for himself uh, at the Battle of Fallen Timbers. Uh, and the Washington administration. So you've got, some, you've got some pretty interesting battles that take place out there. But Americans are settling this area. And Jefferson, in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, says, okay, here's what we're going to do with this territory. We're going to divide it up. We're going to block it out. We're going to create these, uh, these parcels that are 640 acres, and it's you know, so many square miles, one mile by one mile, and uh, we're going we're gonna to divide all this up. We're going to have military governors control it, and uh, we're, we're going to allow for the creation of states. We're going to do these things, and this will allow for the general government to control this territory. Well, knowing full well, one of the reasons why they wanted this again, was because of the fact that you had severe problems with the British in particular, and later the French, or at least the threat of the French, and the Spanish even, uh, in this Western territory. So they had to come up with something, some way to organize the territory to keep Americans moving West. And Jefferson called this movement, you know, the, the future empire of liberty. As the empire of liberty, the ball would roll across the continent, and we'd have these future republics out in the West. And these would be allies with the old Eastern republics. And he, I think in many ways, Jefferson thought, that these areas would eventually become independent. So we're having this westward movement, 
and then you get to the Mississippi River. And then what do you do from there? So the Mississippi becomes the great barrier to Western expansion. And not only that, you've got the Spanish that control that territory past the Mississippi and then later the French. So we get to the Jefferson administration. Jefferson's elected president by Congress in 1801 on the 36th ballot. And he dispatches James Monroe to come up with a treaty with the French that would allow the United States to use New Orleans. Because, of course, New Orleans being the major trading port for the Mississippi River, you got it. If you're going to sail down the Mississippi, bring your product down the Mississippi, you've got all these Western farmers that want to get their product out to market. And most of them are going to try to go down the Mississippi. They'll take uh, various tributaries to the Mississippi and they'll try to funnel out in the Gulf that way. Uh, you got to go through New Orleans. So Jefferson wants New Orleans. And of course, he made a statement look, if we don't get New Orleans, if we don't have navigation in the Mississippi, then we must marry ourselves to the British fleet and nation. He was concerned about the French, and in particular Napoleon Bonaparte, who by 1803 was seen as a pretty bad dude. Uh, this guy uh, was someone who was uh, going to start marauding through Europe. Uh, he's going to bring Europe under his heel, and you're going to have all these various coalitions against Napoleon. But as Monroe shows up in, in France, he's greeted by Talleyrand, who was the great... Uh, French diplomat. And Talleyrand says, look, Monroe, uh, we don't know if we want this thing anymore. It's kind of a headache. Napoleon, yeah, I mean, he wanted a North American empire, but uh, he's kind of cooled on that. So do you want the whole thing? Forget about just New Orleans. How about, how about we sell you the whole thing for 15 million bucks? Monroe says, my gosh, uh, wasn't really given instructions to do that, but let's, let's, hammer out the treaty, and I'll sail back over, and we'll see what happens. So essentially what happens here is that Monroe and Talleyrand work out a treaty. A treaty. And they sign it, of course, knowing, the French fully knowing, that the Americans uh, have to bring it back through the channels that are constitutionally required, which is Senate approval and then funding by the House of Representatives that Monroe is simply speaking for the administration, but Monroe has no power other than he can work out the treaty, but it has to be submitted to the Congress for approval, for ratification. So they're going to they're gonna get Louisiana for 15 million bucks, which comes out to about three cents an acre. And that's still a darn good deal, even in current dollars. Uh, so it's about 828,000 acres of land. So Monroe sails back over the United States, and he says, hey, look, Jefferson, I've got a deal for you. This is something we should really think about. Uh, we can get the whole darn thing for 15 million bucks. Jefferson pauses. He says, wait a second here. Now, I sent you over there to negotiate the navigation of the Mississippi River and in New Orleans, but I didn't, I didn't say anything about buying some territory here, and I'm not even certain we can do that. This is 1803. I'm not even certain we can do that. Where does it say in the Constitution we can buy territory? In fact, Jefferson has a very interesting quote at this time about that. And again, I, I, uh, I bring this up in my Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. And he says, quote, our, pe our peculiar security is in the possession of a written Constitution. Let us not make it a blank paper by construction. I say the same as to the opinion of those who consider the grant of the treaty-making power as boundless, 
If it is, then we have no Constitution. This was Jefferson's position as Monroe brought back this treaty. And so he tells, Jefferson tells Madison, write up some amendments so that we can do this thing. We can actually acquire land by amending the Constitution. We'll, we'll submit the treaty with the amendments and we'll get them both done at the same time so it all becomes legal. Jefferson was concerned that uh, if you could just annex states through treaty, well, why can't you just annex Ireland? Or why can't you just annex Mexico? Or annex, you know, Mexico, of course, is part of Spain, but why can't you just annex some other country? Uh, we could just do that. Why can't you annex Canada? If the Canadians want to be part of the government, well, then just say we're going to, through treaty, we're just going to annex. And I think that Jefferson was thinking a very limited view of the treaty-making power. In fact, James Madison probably thought it was constitutional. So did Albert Gallatin. Now, Albert Gallatin was Jefferson's Secretary of Treasury, and Gallatin was a Swede. Uh, and he thought that, uh, a Swissman, I'm sorry, he was a Swissman, and he thought that um, this was perfectly constitutional because he said, look, here, wait a second. Uh, the treaty doesn't mean anything unless the Senate ratifies it and the Congress funds it. So if we submit a treaty to the Congress and they, and they reject it, and they say, you know, this is unconstitutional, then we've, we've done nothing wrong. I believe that you can do practically anything you want in, the, in a treaty as long as it doesn't expressly violate the Constitution. Uh, in fact, Gallatin, as I say in the book, believed that the United States could purchase and acquire territory regardless of whether that particular power was specifically enumerated in the Constitution. Even John Randolph of Roanoke thought at this time that this was perfectly constitutional. Now, John Randolph of Roanoke, being one of the most ardent, strict constructionists in the Congress, said, yeah, I, I think this is constitutional. Now, now, Randolph eventually switched sides, and he said, no, I don't think it is. But at this point, he said, yeah, I think we've got, you've got a case here because it's a treaty. It's a treaty. As long as it doesn't, you know, subjugate the United States, as long as it doesn't completely undermine the entire Constitution, which this would not do. For example, you couldn't have a treaty that would say we're going to disarm every American. You can't do that because it's specifically outlined the Constitution that the general government has no control, cannot disarm Americans. So you can't do that, but there's nothing that says there's a treaty that you cannot acquire territory. So Jefferson says, okay, I will submit this treaty. I'll drop the requirements for amendments. Now, one of the things that was going on here, of course, is France was getting cold feet, and they, and they wanted to, to renegotiate this thing. And Jefferson said, no, 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 we're going to put it forward. We've, we've agreed to it in principle, so we're going to put it to the Senate, and, uh, and I'll drop the amendments because I believe Madison and Gallatin now, and we're going to get this uh, Louisiana purchase. So Jefferson was immediately criticized by the Federalists. They jumped all over it. Ho, ho, ho! This is the Michael Malice uh, point. Ho, 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 here you go. Jefferson has now become a, he's become a Hamiltonian. Here he is. He's, he's dropping his strict construction in favor of the Hamiltonian argument that that's, hey, strict construction is just kind of stupid. And so, uh, but did that really happen? Not really. And were the Federalists being a little bit disingenuous here as to what was going on? Now, of course, Jefferson was going to have to use the Bank of the United States to fund the thing, the bank that he was opposed to. But that's how it was going to have to be funded. And that was one area where you could say, well, I mean, Jefferson is you know, accepting something here he had never supported before. But the bank was chartered and there was really nothing Jefferson could do about it. So might as well use it uh, to your advantage while you can. And so um, the... 
the uh, Federalists were saying, hey, this thing is unconstitutional. Uh, this is There's nothing in the Constitution that says you can do this. But the real issue here came down to the question I proposed in another podcast, why slavery? The sla- slavery is not on the agenda here. No one's talking about slavery in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase, but the Federalists are against the Purchase. Why? Because they understood very well what the Purchase meant. The Purchase meant we were going to add 828,000 acres of land, and the people that were going to live on that land were predominantly farmers. Farmers. And who are farmers going to vote for? Well, they're going to vote for Thomas Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans, that faction. So the Federalists are starting to push back against Louisiana because the farmers would undermine all of their political power. And this gets into the idea of Northern secession. I mentioned in the last podcast, and I've said it many times before, Northerners were only nationalists when it suited their agenda. Southerners were generally interested in the good and whole of the Union throughout most of the of antebellum history, even when it didn't work to their advantage. You have John C. Calhoun, for example, very famously uh, advocating the bonus bill and a, a higher tariff in 1816 as payback, even if it hurt them, even if it hurt them as payback to the North for the War of 1812. And the spirit of Union... Southerners generally supported, and look, the National Republicans, that's James Madison, they generally supported what was good for the whole of the Union, even if it didn't necessarily work to their advantage all the time. Northerners in Massachusetts and the New England states were not interested in that if it didn't work to the benefit of their section. You had Northerners like Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King advocating secession in 1794. You had, at this point, now here we go again, we've got all this area that's going to be farmers. How is it going to be organized? Who's going to live there? What? What? If these states come in, they're going to vote for <gasps> Jeffersonians. We can't have that. The Deep North can't have that. We can't have all these, all these uh, farmers in here who are going to vote against us. So, led by Timothy Pickering of Massachusetts, the former Secretary of State, a group of New Englanders known as the Essex Junto begins agitating for secession. They want out because they can't see a future in a union dominated by Jeffersonian farmers. If you look at a lot of the political battles that we have over time and what these things are and what these things meant, particularly in the period leading up to uh, the war in 1861, it all comes down to power. All the issues, all the other things are subordinate to this quest for power by one section of the United States, and that would be New England. If you look at the Hartford Convention, as I've mentioned before, it was all about power. And so this faction of New Englanders that starts pushing for secession in 1803, they continue it all the way through 1815. For the next little over a decade, they are going to be ardent secessionists because they don't see a pathway to their power at all. They can't even, I mean, look, when you get to James Monroe, James Monroe, of course, he's elected president in 1816, but James Monroe wins the 1820 election with only one dissenting vote. Obviously, the South was dominating the government, and they were dominating the government 
even before the Hartford Convention. And you've got all these new states that are going to be admitted to the Union because we've got the Louisiana Purchase, and it's going to create all kinds of problems for these New England merchants when you've got all these farmers in the Union now who are going to vote for Jeffersonians all the time. So this constitutional argument that was being made, oh, Jefferson, you're just being inconsistent, or, or you're, you're just supporting the, 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 the loose construction of the Constitution here. It's, uh, it's, that, that, you can't do that. I mean, this is something you said would never happen. And Jefferson, of course, himself is saying, I don't know if this is constitutional, but a treaty-making power, you can do things through the treaty. It's formally ratified by the Senate and funded by the Congress. They didn't have to do it. They could just say, look, this is unconstitutional. We're not doing it. If the Congress agrees to it, well... Through a treaty, again, which is perfectly constitutional, it's not like Hamilton's implied powers. You see, Hamilton's implied powers were something else. Hamilton had to read in to the necessary and proper clause to get it to where he could have it, the you-can-do-anything-you-want-to-do clause. Jefferson didn't have to read into the treaty-making power. The United States can, can write treaties. And those treaties can add territory if that's the case, after you have a war or something of that nature, or even a peaceful treaty like the Louisiana Purchase. It was a peaceful treaty. The United States acquired territory. They paid for it. And so we get that land. So this was not inconsistent constitutionally, not in the least. Uh, I think that in this particular way, Jefferson was being overly cautious in saying we need an amendment to do this, where at the same time I think Gallatin was actually right. No, you don't. Not for a treaty. Now, if you were just going to have the Congress just buy this outright, well, maybe, because there's no power in the Constitution that authorizes the Congress to purchase territory. If you're just going to do it outright, but through a treaty, that's a whole different scenario, a whole different game then. And Madison probably thought it was constitutional as well. Uh, And Jefferson eventually just said, okay. So I think the argument that Jefferson became this loose constructionist. Now, I think that when he advocated the embargo uh, in his second term, that was highly problematic constitutionally. But um, in some way, I mean, particularly coming from the executive branch and uh, what he advocated. But otherwise, you know, other Jefferson um, here was not being inconsistent. He was not being, uh, you know, someone who didn't follow his own ideas. He was simply interested through a treaty and adding territory to the United States. Now, uh, so when your friends bring this up and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, your guy Jefferson, well, he's just a, he's just a hypocrite. That's all he is. At least Hamilton was honest. Hamilton was going to abuse the Constitution. But Hamilton wasn't honest because he said he wouldn't abuse the Constitution. But, of course, when he gets in office, he's going to abuse the Constitution. So, I mean, there's, there's that. You can say, well, Hamilton was a liar. Look at Hamilton 1787 compared to Hamilton 1788 compared to Hamilton of 1789. 1790. Look at those Hamiltons. There's 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 uh, two different Hamiltons there. The Hamilton of 1787 was the same Hamilton as 1790, but not the Hamilton of 1788. Different Hamiltons. Uh, in this case, Jefferson was still being Jefferson and saying, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think it's unconstitutional, but he's persuaded by his cabinet that, no, 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 this is probably constitutional. So Jefferson was not being inconsistent there. I think you could say maybe he was in his second term, as war became a major, a major uh, threat to the United States in regard to the British, uh, but um, here in Louisiana, it's not. And of course, Louisiana set the stage for all of the great 
uh, problems that we're going to have moving forward in terms of the sectional conflict. And it all goes back to that 1804, 1803-4 Essex Junto, and what they were saying. This is going to be a disaster for the North if we don't, if, if we have this thing go through, we are doomed politically. If you want to look at the sectional conflict, just go to the Louisiana Purchase. That's where you got, I mean, that's where you start. Uh, you could, I mean, you could go before you could go back to the Philadelphia Convention and you know, the Union itself. But if you want to see how it develops in the uh, 1800s, that's it, because you've got this land, and now you have to decide what to do with it. Who's going to live there? And then, of course, winning the votes in the Western Territory becomes the most important part of American politics moving forward. You got all these people moving out west as part of that Western movement. Now they jump over the Mississippi, they get into this Western Territory, eventually they're going to get to California. And so that Western movement, you know, this is the Frederick Jackson Turner, the frontier thesis in American history, and what this did to Americans. It, he says it democratized America, made it, it leveled everything. Uh, I mean, the Turner thesis is one of the most famous in American historiography, uh, and people spend spill lots of ink either uh, refuting the thesis or trying to or, or proving the thesis, but without a doubt, the frontier was, as I think Jackson Turner was correct about this, Frederick Jackson Turner was correct, uh, it was one of the defining moments, one of the defining issues of American history, particularly when it came to power politics. Without the West, you don't have the sectional conflict. The, the issues that came up because of that never would have come up, particularly the issue of slavery. It never, I mean... They talked about it, the Philadelphia Convention, but it wasn't going to be confined to the states, and it wasn't really ever going to be an issue. As you start moving west, though, you start seeing the avenue for political power. Hey, we can have uh, we can have more political power here if we just get these western states on our side. And the New England Federalists were worried they would never have that power. So, all of this rhetoric about Jefferson doing something unconstitutional is all based on a fabricated lie by the New England Federalists who wanted to ensure that Jefferson didn't get his way because they would lose elections. Now, of course, they lost. In fact, there were only seven votes cast against the thing in the Senate. Uh, this thing, this treaty was ratified by a crushing majority. Uh, and it was highly popular at the time. And I say perfectly constitutional. It was a treaty. It wasn't an act of Congress. It was a treaty that brought Louisiana in, and then they just had to figure out how they were going to pay for it. I mean, you could you could debate whether the bank should have been used to pay for it, or there was some issue there, or you could have said we should have had a tax to pay for this thing, or whatever it was. We can talk about the mechanics of actually paying for it, but the fact of acquiring the territory itself was in no way unconstitutional. And so when those Hamiltonians come out and say, yeah, what about Jefferson and the Con Just say, look, hey, two different things. Necessary and proper clause... You swore that would not be abused, and it can only do what the enumerated powers are. That's different than saying there's a treaty, which has been formally ratified by the Congress, negotiated by the executive branch. It doesn't do anything unconstitutional, so here you go. Two different things. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time. <laughs>